Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. There's so many subcultures happening within the cryptocurrency space, over 17,000 different digital assets available. And so how do you even know where to start? I was doing day trading in the late 90s, thinking that was a lot of fun and thinking it was easy to make money. But the truth of the matter is that doesn't always end well. This current kind of super active trading is really just an extension of what Betterment pioneered, right? The democratization of finance. When the markets are rising, everyone thinks they're a winner. You know, in times of volatility, that's when our investing philosophy withstands the test of time. That's Sarah Levy, CEO of Betterment, the digital investment advisor known for its somewhat traditional investing philosophy that just made an intriguing move by buying a cryptocurrency platform. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Sarah because volatility in the investment markets has quickly escalated for cryptocurrency and all asset classes. That has implications for funding new businesses and for personal portfolios. Betterman is both hewing to its tried and true principles and branching out into new areas in a bid to scale not just its assets, but its influence. Sarah, who became CEO in the midst of the pandemic, has an intriguing perspective on how newer digital finance platforms are shifting norms. Her background is chief operating officer at one of the world's largest media companies. The fun she's having, she says, reflects the potential for impact, even when the day-to-day markets are swirling. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news, that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. (laughs) That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision, and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs.
I'm Bob Safian. I'm here with Sarah Levy, the CEO of investment advisory firm Betterment. Sarah's coming to us from the Betterment offices in Manhattan as I ask my questions from my home in Brooklyn. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bob. So you and I have some friends in common, we discovered, which I guess isn't surprising, as we've both been in the media world in New York City for a while. You at Viacom as chief operating officer before coming over to Betterment in late 2020. I'm intrigued to ask you about that transition. But first, I want to ask you about a recent acquisition that Betterment announced of a cryptocurrency investing platform called Makara. Am I pronouncing that right, Makara? You got it, Makara. So what prompted this move? Because Betterman had been one of the investing shops that had been a little reticent about crypto investing. Yeah, fair enough. So, you know, it maybe requires a little bit of history, perhaps, to get us to the moment of Makara. But I think the quick answer would be, we believe in cryptocurrency. We believe that the asset class is here to stay. And so if we back up and just talk about Betterment and kind of who we are, we are the largest independent digital investment advisor. And we fundamentally believe in an investing strategy that is about long-term diversification. You would think of us as focused more on traditional investing styles, if you will. And so I think to some, the idea of crypto was a little bit innovative and outside our wheelhouse. But our view really is once we believe that an asset class is here to stay, the question is, how do we responsibly recommend that and incorporate that alongside a traditional investment strategy? And we came to believe that Makara, which basically build themselves as a betterment of crypto was the way to do that, which was same lens, diversification, long-term, new asset class. Sometimes I find myself a little at odds when it comes to crypto. Like, I certainly see the power and potential of blockchain and Web 3.0 ideas that are swirling. And I see why people have enthusiasm for the ways cryptocurrency can impact global trade and cross-border transactions, a bunch of other things. Investing in the technologies, I definitely get. Investing in the currencies myself, sometimes it feels more like speculation than investing. I mean, I've never invested in currencies in general, for instance. But if I understand you right, you sort of dealt with this idea of speculating versus investing by diversifying by having a platform that goes across different cryptocurrencies? That's exactly right. So if you think about what you can find in the marketplace today, almost think of the analogy to self-directed investing with stocks. So if the analogy of what's in the marketplace on some of the leaders today looks and feels a lot more like what happened last year with game stonks and things going on on Robinhood, we felt that by and large, the average investor doesn't have enough information to figure out which currency, which technology. There's so many subcultures happening within the cryptocurrency space. But our view, like yours, really, right, exactly what you said, was that there is a value creation opportunity here in aggregate in the asset class, but betting which is going to be the winner is too hard to do for the average consumer. There are over 17,000 different digital assets available. And so how do you even know where to start? And there's a new one every day. So our view was, again, just like in traditional investing, think about it as a diversified portfolio, think of it as a long-term hold, and play the overall market. Don't play the individual stories. And this is why you waited until now, until you could find a resource or a platform that could deliver this? Yeah, well, it literally does not exist in the marketplace. There are some ETFs just getting started or, you know, in the last, call it six months, that have entered the fray. But most of those ETFs Number one, don't 
track the actual underlying currencies, right? They track futures. Number two, they're not diversified. And so there's a lot of leakage in there. You're still betting on individual coins. And our view was, how do we bring this long-term approach to an asset class? And this was really the first player that we saw in the marketplace who also incidentally did it and does it as a registered investment advisor. So there's a trust element here and a fiduciary approach that we've always taken and that they were also taking that really like struck a chord with us. I mentioned earlier, your background is not in finance, although I did see that you spent a summer at Goldman Sachs when you were at business school. But rather than stay on that path, you chose to go into the media business at Nickelodeon and then at the parent company, Viacom. Why did you make that choice, media over finance then? And why did you find yourself coming back around to Betterment come 2020? So you dug deep to find that little tidbit in my past. Well done. So when I came out of college, so now we're back in the history books, but I worked at Disney for a couple of years and I worked in corporate. And really there I was focused on corporate development and strategy and sort of mega deal making at the time. And one of the theses I wanted to test in my summer in business school was, was it the deal making I loved or was it media I loved? Mm. And so I had actually a great experience at Goldman, all good things to say, but I was much more passionate about the media projects I worked on relative to other projects I worked on. And that led me to believe, you know, let me go try my hand at going deeper in the media space. And I loved that I spent 21 years at Viacom. I guess the end of your question is, then why the reversal? So it was a great decade of growth. And I don't know if we laugh now a little bit when we say, you know, I lived the cable growth years, but they were some awesome years. And then the back half of my trajectory there was really more about digital transformation and consolidation and scaling operations and doing things more efficiently. As I came to the end of that journey, I thought, you know what, I've done what I can do in media. And how do I get on the other side of the digital transformation? You know, is there an industry? And Kendall, I was pretty open-minded about what industry. I was really just looking for a growth opportunity at a company that was doing something new and innovative. And it's way more fun to be on this side of the digital transformation than the other side. <laughs> yeah, as I poked you about the earlier days in your career. I was thinking back to the early days in my journalistic career in my 30s. I was named the editor of Money Magazine, which was the dominant personal finance brand at the time, although no longer exists, right? But I found myself suddenly giving financial and investing advice to millions of people, and I wasn't exactly an expert investor. I'm curious, how did you prepare yourself for this perch at Betterment to educate yourself? Or are you a super active investor yourself already? Well, so let's separate me from the job a little bit. So I would say to you, yes, I have always been personally intrigued by investing. So that is true. And talk about not practicing what I now preach. In my early days out of school, before I really knew much, I was doing day trading in the late 90s, thinking that was a lot of fun and thinking it was easy to make money. But the truth of the matter is that doesn't always end well. And I had a day job. And when you can't do it in a focused way as your day job, it's really hard to time the market. You know, it's interesting how it comes full circle because now I come to the other side here and I realize I never should have been doing that in the first place. So thank God I didn't keep that up. But as I think about the job now of giving people investment advice, you know, the truth is there's a lot more than me behind Betterment. We are a 400 person team. We have investing professionals and experts constructing our portfolios. And then we have great technology that actually enhances those results with tech smart tools and rebalancing and fractional share investment and things that really can only be done with great technology. 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned your day trading past, and it certainly feels like we're in another era where people are much more actively investing, maybe not solely day trading, but you mentioned stonks and some of the other things that have been going on. It's almost like Betterman's philosophy is, I don't want to say out of vogue because the assets are growing, but how do you think about this sort of tech-directed, I guess, robo-advising as it's become known in the marketplace versus this wave of super active investing that seems to be rolling through the culture. Well, it's funny because in some ways, this current kind of super active trading is really just an extension of what I think Betterment and the founder before me, John Stein, pioneered, right? Which was the democratization of finance and the idea that digital tools could actually bring guidance and financial access to a group of people that had a lower asset threshold, perhaps, or lower investable assets than somebody who could access a financial advisor, right? That was sort of the original robo idea. And at that point, it was more about bringing that access and then set it and forget it. You're better off dollar cost averaging, you're better off starting early, but leave your money in the market and let the tools and the technology do the rest. And then I think as we moved into sort of the mobile era, because honestly, that began more as a desktop purchase, right? Enter the mobile era. And now there are new tools available and you can actually be making those choices like every day in your pocket on the fly. And that kind of gave rise, I think, to this self-directed, we'll call it mania, we'll call it gamification. But it was really just an extension of sort of a new platform allowing you to manage your money more frequently and easily. The part of the story that gets lost is that more money overall has moved to these digital platforms. So whether it's self-directed or whether it's more kind of set it and forget it, either way, the money is leaving large institutions. And so for me, the real question now is, well, how do you take a page from some of that self-directed activity and understand what pieces of it you want to adopt? And for us, that's really a personalization story, right? So how do I now be excellent on mobile? And then how do I move to a place that can engage the customer, if not daily, emotionally, right? And so things like socially responsible investing, we've found as an example of an answer to the, how do I connect with my consumer emotionally? Because that's what's going to make them make the best choices for themselves. And so the philosophy behind Betterman, like, is it shifting? I mean, is your philosophy to be a little more active than the founder's initial philosophy was? No, I wouldn't say that. I would say we still believe in core principles, right? Back to first principles is dollar cost averaging. It's better to put it away sooner than later, no matter the amount. No amount is too small diversification, and there are different moments in the market. Markets are volatile. There are moments in the market where international is better or tech growth stocks are better or, right, we're not playing those segments. Slow and steady kind of wins the race. I think what's evolving is this idea of can you still be diversified but also be engaged and be emotionally engaged. So mm. for example, you can have passive investing, but you can have activism that goes along with that around climate or around making change at companies. And those two ideas don't have to be at odds anymore. And that's where we think there's kind of an exciting opportunity. You came aboard Betterment in the midst of the pandemic, or at least we know that now, late 2020. Did you feel like you were moving into a crisis situation? Did you realize and think like, oh, this is the middle of the pandemic? 
I mean, I don't think anyone could say in late 2020, we knew when the pandemic was going to end or when we were going to go back to work. You know, hindsight is 2020 on that, but I don't think anybody was in a position, certainly not me, to predict that. You know, one of the reasons I came here, the reason really is we have an incredible mission and an incredible culture. And even remotely, the belief in that mission is what galvanizes this organization. You can imagine bringing on a new CEO when you can't meet her in person. I didn't have the physical presence with the team, but in odd ways, I actually met more people because a room can be more inclusive and open on Zoom because you can have 200 people in the room versus the limitations of the four walls. It was certainly a different rhythm. And don't get me wrong, I'm thrilled to be back in the office, but I don't think we thought about it as a crisis. I mean, the best news about it was that the markets were frothy. And in some ways, it's much harder now. Like now we're seeing volatility in the markets. And that's the part of the story, almost coming back to what you were saying right before about the day trading and all that craze. Like when the markets are rising, everyone thinks they're a winner. Everyone is a winner, right? And I think, you know, in times of volatility, that's when our investing philosophy withstands the test of time. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning and I said, you know what, I'm going to just like share this with my peers was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You'd write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Before the break, we heard Betterment CEO Sarah Levy talk about why she's moved into cryptocurrency, her own experiences with day trading, and taking the helm in the midst of a pandemic. Now she talks about how she navigates succeeding a founder, why power can breed bad choices, and how Betterment is integrating sustainability into investing in new ways. Plus, her lessons of big companies versus smaller ones, and what she calls straddling these two worlds. You mentioned that you followed a founder as leader, which can have its challenges. How is the company different with you? I mean, I know he's still the chairman, so he's your boss, but what's different? John, as a founder, had a vision and he was a pioneer. And so he really broke new ground in a new area. He built a hungry team and chased a lot of different ideas. So he always saw around the next corner and launched the next product. I think what I came in to do was to say, okay, product market fit is a part of the conversation, but really there's a time where you move from almost a 
product-led orientation to a brand-led orientation. And so how do we begin to sort of put the pieces that bolster the product? So just a tactical example would be customer experience, right? I believe that on the front lines, your customer experience executives, they are meeting your customers and they are the first impression many customers get of your company. That has to be excellent and delightful. That hadn't been a focus prior to my arrival. The focus really was, well, we've got a great investing product, so why wouldn't they want to come to Betterment? And so I think building muscles sort of surrounding that product and building muscles to scale is really just a different set of skills. That's where I'm kind of building on the foundation that he set. As businesses get more sophisticated, sometimes the brand and the product decisions align with each other or you figure out how to align them with each other. I know you're in the process of rolling out new products for financial wellness, and I'm curious whether that's one of those areas. So that is definitely, I wouldn't call that a pivot, but that's a great example of sort of building on what John began. So dial the clock back, call it five years. And Betterment was looking for a 401k for the employees and they were unsatisfied with the products in the marketplace. So, you know, as a good founder and company does, he said, great, well, there isn't one out there, so let's build one ourselves. So, okay, great initiative. But the however of that was it was harder than they realized to build a record keeper. So I enter the scene and they had this product that had actually been incredibly well built and developed, but then hadn't put the kind of sales and operations around it to scale it and build it. So one of the things I did when I came in was sort of dust off all the products and say, where do we want to put more investment and where do we want to put less investment? And this to me was sort of a diamond in the rough, perfect product market fit for small and medium-sized businesses, but didn't yet have a sales and operational organization around it to scale. So we started to invest there and then enter the great resignation and this time of movement for employees. And we started to talk to customers and small businesses. And what we kept hearing was, I need a way to differentiate for my employees and benefits is a way I can do that. And we started really listening to the customers about pain points. And one, for example, was student loans. They said, you know what, one of the major reasons The largest reason that employees don't participate in their corporate 401k plan is because they have student loan debt. So we said, okay, well, let's take that on board. Let's think about how we can unite these ideas and take this from a great 401k to a more holistic financial wellness package that could help small businesses differentiate in the fight for talent. So that's where our heads are now. So yes, we are in the process of rolling that out. And I guess sort of expanding the notion of what your product is from just 401k to something broader like financial wellness opens up both access for you to new markets and I guess points towards new kinds of products. I would add it also connects back to our core business, right? So if you start with our mission, making people's lives better, That is an incredibly aspirational idea. And so how do we do that on the retail side, right? We do that by offering a delightfully simple platform to save and build wealth. That is fundamentally what our core product does. When you think about retirement and financial independence, the 401k and the employer's ability to help an employee on that financial independence journey ties beautifully into that ultimate mission. So once 
you come on board through your employer, then you have access to all the great tools of the retail product and you can look at your financial health holistically. That's a big idea. You said something when we talked yesterday that smaller companies are so much more fun. Can you unpack that a little? I mean, what's more fun about Betterment than working at Viacom? You must have had fun at Viacom. You were there a long time. Is it about being CEO and having more control or like what makes it fun? Well, I think you're right. I did have a good time at Viacom. I wouldn't have stayed 21 years if we weren't having a good time. But I think what's fun here is that innovation and sort of the pace of change brings an energy to it that you can't quite capture in a bigger company, right? We are not saddled with legacy businesses here that prevent us from chasing new dreams. And I think to me, that's really what's exciting, right? As a large company, as a public company, you have incredible constraints born of your own success, right? And born of your core business, you're sort of straddling these two worlds, the business you've built and that's generating a lot of cash and the place you want to go to. Here, we've built it from the ground up. And so there is no idea that's too small and there's no idea that's getting in the way of the past and it's all kind of looking forward. Mm. So that to me, but yes, look, I'm not going to deny that it's fun to be in charge. So maybe I've got less red tape in this role than I did in my old role. So there's got to be a part of that there too. And are there things when you come in that you're like, from your experience at the bigger, more mature company that you're like, oh my gosh, why aren't we doing this? Like, we got to put this in place. Things that are obvious lessons that maybe people who are at earlier stage businesses might be missing. Well, I think communication is a really big one because the bigger you get, bringing everyone along. So whether that's top-down communication or bottoms-up communication, right? Creating the right, and I hate the word process and nobody wants to hear that, but honestly, creating the right process to get information to where it needs to be. And so I think we can bring some of that muscle and then try to avoid some of the pitfalls of too much process, right? So there's a tension there that I think is Mm. healthy and evolving, let's say. Yeah. Some colleagues of mine have noted that women executives only seem to get CEO opportunities opportunities in the most challenging situations. They don't often get the plum CEO jobs. I'm not suggesting that Betterment isn't a plum perch. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm curious, your move from media to finance, was it at all because the opportunities were more open to you in a startup-like situation? I don't think so. I don't think I thought of this as either being a woman or, you know, my career choice was more about you know, I was reporting to the CEO at Viacom. He wasn't going anywhere. He's still there, right? There wasn't sort of a next move. And I had spent two decades there. So it really, for me, was about the learning opportunity, which was I came here to do some great work and to learn and to mentor. That had really run its course. And I felt like I had a next act. Coming to Betterment, I think, was more kind of luck and kismet than anything else. I met some people. I really liked them. I was inspired by the mission. And I saw a brand that I felt had incredible DNA and core ideas, but that was just waiting to be made famous. And that was an exciting challenge. The media business has been rocked lately by Jeff Zucker's departure from CNN over his failure to disclose a personal relationship as required by company policy. And the media businesses have had at least their fair share of disappointment around these kinds of workplace issues in terms of executive behavior. Do you think that's something that is more acute at media businesses than in other businesses? 
Look, I think power can breed bad choices, right? And so I think that could be true in any industry. But I think in media in particular, the sort of glamour and the attractiveness and the, you know, the nature of the power dynamic in media is perhaps even more pronounced with people wanting to get their big shot. And so I think maybe that puts people in an unequal playing field that breeds unfortunate behavior. I don't know, is it more or less than in finance? I don't know. I think it's more high profile because there are famous people involved. Mm. Yeah, it's just a part of, unfortunately, a business culture that we're still working our way through to better sides of. You mentioned socially responsible investing earlier, and I want to ask you a little bit more about that. I mean, it's a realm that's been growing in all kinds of ways, and there are some critiques sometimes about the vagueness of definitions of socially responsible investing. And I'm curious how you guys resolve that or deal with that. You know, like is a company like Amazon socially responsible because it sets ambitious carbon neutral goals or is it not because their footprint today is large or because of their activity with unions? You know, it's so hard to define this area. And I know this is something you feel like you can get your customers to be more engaged through, how do you manage that part of what the definition is for them? So I think we see it kind of as an evolution. So we entered the socially responsible investing space in the fall of 2020. And our view was, don't make perfection be the enemy of good. So our thought was, if we can begin to play in this space, right, the first sort of threshold question for an investor is, Am I going to have to trade off financial performance in the pursuit of my values, whether that is climate, whether that is about social equality, you know, however you as an individual want to engage? And I think the first threshold question for us was, let's answer that question no. Let's find a way to allow you not to have to make that, force that trade off. So point one. Point two is we thought about it, and you're right, there's greenwashing, there's uneven definitions, and I think that continues to be true. But our view was we don't make our own products. What we do on behalf of our clients is we look for the best available products in the marketplace. And the product that is the best today may not be the same product that's the best tomorrow. And the good news is we're not pushing any particular product. We'll go get you a better one. So whether better is cheaper, whether better is you know more carbon neutral, we are always striving to improve. So we did a partnership, for example, with engine number one, where we incorporated the vote ETF into our portfolios. And we did that because they came to market with a really fabulous product. Their product didn't say, I'm going to exclude companies who are, quote, bad, let's say, for the environment in this example. Rather, they said, if we can accumulate a position in companies that aren't doing as much good as we'd like them to, we can then be activists on the behalf of our shareholders, and we can push those, quote, bad companies to do well or to do good. And so I think to me, that's sort of an exciting new vector that I think will probably become more prominent as we move forward, which is this idea of like, how do you harness collective assets to drive better outcomes? 
Yeah, it's a very different way of looking at socially responsible investing, which was always about like, oh, I'm not going to put my money into something that, you know, makes me uneasy, as opposed to saying, no, that's where I should go to push them into a better direction. Exactly, exactly. So that's where I see like a lot of excitement and a lot of engagement. And then what we've been able to do is actually talk to our customers, right? Sending out surveys and saying to them, you know, what do you care about? Tell me what you care about and let us vote on your behalf. Let us go find the issues that resonate with you. And that creates, again, an engaged user, a sticky user. It's attracted actually a different kind of user. So typically finance, you know, you say it tilts more male. We're seeing in these socially responsible investing areas, we're seeing more women come to the platform. We're seeing more diversity come to the platform. So it's been a really great journey, but we're not there yet. And we want to be part of the solution. That's what's exciting. So what's at stake for Betterment right now? We have an opportunity to transform, I'll come back to our financial wellness conversation because this is where I get really excited, to transform the expectation of employees of their employers and to set kind of a new baseline standard for what is expected of small businesses in terms of helping their employees on their life journey. And I think that's like a really aspirational idea that goes well beyond retirement. I think it'll be interesting to see where the world of finance takes us, what happens to crypto, how the hybrid workforce changes our relationship with companies and the duration of stay that employees have with their employers. You know, I think we can be a part of all of that. We sort of sit at the intersection of money and life. And I think that's a really cool place to be. Well, that's terrific, Sarah. Thank you for sharing with us and for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Thanks, Bob. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely using sanitized audio gear. I'm your Rapid Response host, Bob Safian. Host for Masters of Scale is Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producers are Jordan McLeod, Christina Gonzalez, and Marie McCoy-Thompson. 
Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Daniel Nissenbaum and the Holiday Brothers. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nault, and Mike Gallagher. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Sarah Sandman, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Charlie Manessis, Adam Heiner, Anna Pizzino, Ben Richardson, Mina Kurosawa, Saida Sapieva, and Colin Howard. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com membership. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter. <laughs>